I had a TV show called The Patty Lovett Reed Show. And, and you know what? I had that show too early. I didn't understand TV. I didn't understand messaging. I didn't, I wasn't that good. Um, and so I remember my, one of my sons looking at me going, wow, if that doesn't make it. What a spectacular fail with your name on it. Patty, mm. love it. Read. Gosh, that didn't make it. And I remember thinking, Ooh, <laughs> you're right. You're right about that. Uh, but, but you know what? Um, there are times when things don't go the way you hoped and they may not have been at the right time. And, and so I think don't give up on your dreams. It mm. doesn't, it doesn't mean because one thing didn't work out. You, it doesn't mean you're not going to work out in another way. Um, at the time, I think I was in the right seat, but it's like getting into a bed at night. You know how you get into that sweet spot to fall asleep? I was in the right bed, but I wasn't in the sweet spot. And so I think sometimes it takes a while to get to the sweet mm -hmm. spot so that you can thrive, you can be who you're meant to be. Hi, I'm Julie. And I'm Liz. We are business owners turned podcasters. This show gives you the permission and tools to create your courageous second act. We call this the afterglow. Welcome to the afterglow. On today's podcast, we talk money, women and money to be more specific, okay. with one of Canada's with one of Canada's leading financial experts, Patty Lovett Reed. As CTV News Chief Financial Commentator, Patty Lovett-Reed coaches viewers on how to save money, stretch their income, and get the biggest bang for their bucks. She has worked for numerous media outlets, including Bloomberg, CP24, CTV Morning Live, Canada AM, The National, and had her own TV show, The Patty Lovett-Reed Show. She's also written several national best-selling books, including Surprise, You're Wealthy, Everyday Women's Guide to Financial Independence, and Get Real, 26 Canadian Women Share the Secret to Authentic Success. Former Senior Vice President of TD Waterhouse, Patty is a certified financial planner and was awarded with an honorary degree in applied studies from Humber College in June 2010. She also received the 2007 Canada's Most Powerful Women Top 100 Award in the Trailblazers and Trendsetters category. Welcome to the Afterglow, Patty. We are thrilled and excited to have you here. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Patty. We're happy to have you here. We would love to go way back, if possible, right into your childhood. And so some little <laughs> girls, you know, of our generation, they would have maybe been dreaming about being ballerinas or teachers or the odd astronaut here and there. But what were you dreaming of way back in your childhood? Wow, I did not see that question <laughs> coming. Okay, so I think way, way, way back when, um, I was going to be an administrative assistant. Mm. I wanted to support some big executive and make their life easier. So I went into a secretarial program. I think I actually dropped math because I could 100 years ago. And um, I never went to university. I graduated in grade 12 and thought, hmm, what am I going to do now? And I actually wound up walking into a bank and thinking, okay, I'll be a teller. That'll be something for now. And the bank was being robbed when I walked in. And I waited around for an interview, and they said, we were just robbed. Do you think you could come back? And I said, no, I'll wait. 
And then they said, no, no, we've just been robbed. Maybe come back Monday. So there were two of us. And I can tell you the other person who was also there while the bank was being robbed didn't come back. I did. I got the job and that's when I started banking. So forget about the administrative background. We, we really dug into, you know, your background. We didn't come across that being robbed or the bank being robbed story anywhere. You weren't yeah, scared probably, away. It's probably not out there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're, you definitely have some tenacity there. Definitely have some perseverance in that case. You mentioned that you did not go to university, which is so interesting to me, especially in the field that you're in. I mean, there's so many successful people though, that are, you know, have reached high success levels without ever having gone to university. So would you say that you might, you would change anything about your process? Would you go back? Would you, are you happy with um, where it took you? I mean, you were the VP, senior VP of TD Bank. That's pretty incredible. I don't know that in this day and age, you'd been able to go that far without having a university degree. You know, I absolutely agree with you. And in fact, I don't think I would have um, do I have regrets? Yeah, I do have some regrets. But on the other hand, I feel like one of my best accomplishments was um, that I was able to sort of climb the corporate ladder. Uh, you know, in today's environment, you do need some form of post-secondary education. I, I will tell you that we do have four grown children. Um, and growing up, I was that mom that it really wasn't negotiable. They were going to go on to some form of post-secondary education. I wanted them to pursue something that got them excited. That was their passion. And so we had all of our children actually sit down with an industrial psychologist to say, okay, what are your inherent strengths? What's your passion? What's going to get you excited? Because it's pretty hard to know some of those things coming out of, you know, of graduating from grade 12, grade 13 at the time. Wow. Yeah. I haven't even heard of that profession. I think, uh, I, I think I need that. <laughs> I think I need, and and uh, I believe that we've heard you talk about this authenticity track for women. Mm -hmm. um, is that, does that play along in that same mindset? So something about not uh, the authenticity track, as far as we can tell from what we've read, is not giving into conformity. It's finding out what, yes. what brings you happiness in terms of your own per personal and professional goals. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Oh, I love how you looked into that. Uh, I think being authentic is playing to your strengths, your true passion, and going after something that really matters to you. I mean, you can be out there and have a job and be okay. You can even be good at it. But will it excite you and will you become great at it? Those people, and regardless of what profession they're in, those people that wake up and they say, I have a passion for this, I'm excited about it, they will excel and they will do great things. And I can tell you, they will excel and do great things, even if no one else believes they will, because they believe it themselves. And they will have the drive, the tenacity, the hustle to go after it. And, and I, I've always believed that, but it's become more and more apparent, even as we're going through something such as a pandemic. I've had people reach out to me and say, um, you know, what I was doing before isn't exactly what I want to go back and do in the future. Because, um, you know, I found that I wasn't that great at it. I wasn't that excited by it. I feel like I have another chance. And so you really get to know yourself really well while you spend some time with yourself. And that helps you get on that authenticity track. 
I, we have this quote that you actually said that is along the lines of all of this. Mm -hmm. I believe that if you think you can make it to the top and everyone else in the room doesn't believe in you, you can definitely still achieve that goal. This is so profound to us because this is not a typical female belief, right? Like a man might walk into a room and be like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I don't care who else believes in me or whatever they think. They're, they're yeah. just sort of socially conditioned to believe in themselves, whereas women are taught a little bit more to question themselves. Do you feel like you have had that um, affect you in your life, this sort of female conditioning? Because this is not a typical statement. No, I guess it's not. And to be honest with you, I think it was my husband, which kind of blows it up on you that I say it that way, mm. but it was him. When I said, you know, I really feel like I could climb this corporate ladder. And he looked at me and he said, Patty, you need to get off your own coattails because the only person holding you back is you. And once you start to believe in yourself, you will go and do whatever it is you want to do. And I'm not going to say this is the best gift he ever gave me because I've received some pretty nice gifts along mm -hmm. the way. But he did the quote from Walt Disney, if you believe it, you can do it. And he framed it and he said, I want you to put this in, on your desk and I want you to look at it every day until you really start to believe it. And, you know, I remember having countless conversations and one of the analogies, I know you probably know it because you've read the book, Get Real, but it was your book, your life is like a book and each chapter, no one's going to write your book in life. You are. And so when you get to a chapter, no one knows, do you turn right or do you turn left? It's not right or wrong. It's what you decide to embrace. And it's the book of your life, not somebody else's. And so that's why I feel so strongly about embracing it. I, I love this. You, um, you're, you're giving that message to other people, uh, to women. I, I've seen this reflected in your work, to your own children, right? Raising children in a way so that they can live this themselves. And you are doing it yourself. It's part of your passion, your calling is to help others around uh, money mindset and you know economic stability. And you've written two books, at least two books, specifically for women to help them mm -hmm. in terms of generating wealth. What are some tips that you can give women in general to help support our wealth and our finances? Well, I think it's about taking control, control of your financial situation. And what I mean by that is it doesn't mean you have to balance the books in, the in a relationship. It doesn't mean you have to control all the money if you decide to commingle assets. It's about not abdicating responsibility for your financial life or your financial future to anyone, because no one cares more about your financial future than you. And so you may not have all the answers, but the really savvy individual out there says, I don't, I need some help. So let's back up and say, okay, um, why does this matter? I am actually on a second marriage. Jim and I have been married for over 25 years. And we, we actually said a in terms of a happy marriage, not just a marriage. Don't just go through the motions. But, you know, I remember thinking when my first marriage dissolved, I had never balanced a checkbook, let alone negotiate a mortgage. And my daughter had on red patent leather shoes. And I know that sounds weird. Where does that come from? Because at the time I thought I will never be able to afford those shoes again. And in the same heartbeat, I thought, oh, what? Yes, I will. Of course, I'll be able to afford those again, and I will be able to afford them. It was a defining moment. And sometimes in life, you'll get a visual, and that visual sticks with you, and it has. It's stuck with me.
It's interesting that you talk about your, you know, second marriage and that you were a single mm-hmm. mom for a period there. Early on in my first marriage, I'm, I'm currently not married, but in my um, first marriage, my husband at the time thought it would be a really good idea for me to get more familiar with the finances in our family. And he took mm-hmm. me to a female financial advisor who he thought just might be able to speak a little bit more of my language and help me understand our finances a little better because I had absolutely no education on managing the household finances. And when we went, I was so intimidated. I was so overwhelmed with everything she had to say. I knew nothing about RSPs, mutual funds, investing. And so everything kind of went in one ear and out the other. It's not my language, right? The financial language, it just was not my language. And so Obviously now I'm, I'm divorced and I've had to then step up and take control of my own finances. But what can you say or what can you recommend for other women who are out there who this is not their language? Like how, how can we learn to not only take control, but how can we learn in words that will resonate with us? I think you've touched on a really important point. Um, if someone is going to work with you as a financial planner or advisor, it doesn't matter to me whether they're male or female, but I don't want them to think that I'm lucky because they've chosen to take me on as a client. I want it to be the other way around. I want them to know that they're lucky that I've chosen them to work with me. And so when you sit down and you have a dialogue, um, I think it's about full, true, transparent conversation. And I'm hoping that more and more women will say, look, I'm very capable, but I haven't taken the time to figure this out because I've been working on other things in my life. And and so I I think it's about, I want to back up. I want to understand. My father passed away about seven years ago. It was my second father. My first father passed away when he was 36. So mom has been through this before, but mom never managed the finances in her household. And so when my father passed away, I just automatically assumed I'm going to step up and I'm going to take this over. And mom said, not so fast. And I thought, what? And she said, I I may not have been doing it, but I am a very capable individual. I don't know everything. And if I have a question, I will ask you, but if I don't ask you, Leave it with me and, I'll, and we'll take it from there. And honestly, she, she backed up. She went back to basics. And, and this is a woman that, you know, is a grandmother several times over. And she said, I get it. I, I, I get it a lot more than you think I do. I do listen. I do understand. I haven't connected all the dots. And I think that happens with a lot of women. A lot of women are out there working really hard for their money, but they're not making their money work as hard for them because they simply run out of time. There is just too much to do, too many demands. But I'm saying just give it a little bit of your time and you'll find you're, you're a lot further along than you ever thought you were. I love that idea of taking control, right? Of just saying, I'm going to take control of this. And so if I think just that alone is a bit of a mindset hurdle. But if you get mm-hmm. to that point and, and you're, you're confident and you're saying, I want to take control, what are the basics that we need to know? Okay. So budgeting is one, I imagine, but what are some of the others? Sure. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in a week. It doesn't happen in a month. What you do is like anything else. You sort of set out a business plan for yourself. But in this case, it's a financial plan. So I'm going to give you a visual. Let's say you're like the nucleus in a bicycle. You know, the hub in the middle. And each spoke represents an element 
of your financial life. So if you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to set a financial goal for myself. I don't know. It could be, I'm going to pay off this credit card. I'm going to figure out what I'm spending my money on. I'm going to clearly understand how much money I have coming in. And you list down all the things that you want to explore further. And then what happens, and you start to see it pretty quickly, once you say, okay, this is a goal, this is what I'm going to do with it in terms of this credit card, I'm putting all my extra money on it this week, I'm going to pay it off in six months. You start adding spokes on that bicycle wheel, and just like any bicycle wheel, it gets traction and it gets moving faster and faster, and all of a sudden you realize, hmm, I have enough money left over because I've now paid off my credit cards that I probably should start investing. How do I do that? And so you take it in bite-sized pieces. You can't take it and say, you know, I'm going to accomplish everything overnight. It just doesn't work that way. But I think you raise a great point. I want to get rid of debt. I want to understand my budget. I want to understand how much money I actually have in my pocket to spend each month. I want to start investing slowly. Maybe I need insurance because I am a single mom and I do have young children. What happens if I'm not here? Have I set up a will? But do you see where it starts to go from there? You realize that your questions are just like everybody else's, but your answers are different because it's your financial life. You know what, that, that um, the essence of time in this is probably one of the most important factors, as you mentioned, because I think that the overwhelm can really get a hold of you in, in knowing that you, you know, owe money on your credit card. And, and sometimes or often it's, it's almost at the point where you're, you're, you're too late, not necessarily in too much debt, but you feel like you're so overwhelmed that you don't even want to do it. So I think the understanding and the point you're making about starting off slow, building the spokes and giving it time is a really good, um, it's just really good advice for our listeners, especially. Just one more little thing there. Um, Don't compare yourself to someone else. Let's say you're 30 or 35 and you think we should be the same financially because we have similar jobs, similar lifestyles, um, similar, similar, whatever. You don't know someone's personal life. You don't know what they've been through. Someone may not know that you're a single mom. I know two 50-year-olds who came to me and they said, why does so-and-so look so much further ahead than me? But they weren't. They were in debt well beyond where this person was. This person was living within their means. They had been through a separation. They knew that they had to change their behaviors of the past. And so don't compare yourself to anyone ever because you don't know their financial situations. There's a lot of keeping up with the Joneses and they're broke. So you might be way further ahead than you think. I'm going to actually change the question that I was going to ask because I like that, that note that you you're on right now. And it's a little bit about um, something that I've heard you say before, but also um, in rich dad, poor dad, he says savers are losers. Right. And I've heard you mention in some of your (laughs) interviews that, you know, you don't get rich by saving. Can you just expand on that a little bit? Well, you don't get rich by saving, by saving money in a a savings account. I like the idea of having an emergency fund. I used to say three to six months living expenses. Now, given what's going on, maybe closer to six to nine months. And not everyone has that. So maybe have a credit card that you don't use, that you have access to, or maybe even a line of credit. Because in an emergency situation, you lose your job, the roof leaks, you get where I'm coming from. Um, You want to have access to money. But 
The other side of that is if you're erring on the side of caution because you don't understand investing in the markets, the importance of a long-term perspective and good quality investments, if you sit in cash, yeah, you're not going to get rich because after taxes and inflation, uh, you actually lose purchasing power because you're not making enough money on it. So you want to earn income on income. And so a portion of your money to the extent that you can I do think needs to be invested. Why is money, why is it so hard? I mean, why are there so many books about money? Why do we have such a hard time taking control of our money? Why do we spend more than we should? Like, like why, is there, why are so many of us in uh, debt? Why, why is it such a hard thing for us? Why? <laughs> because I, I think what happens is um, you become sort of overwhelmed by it. And you know, way back when it was never really taught in school. And so we didn't understand that, you know, interest rates play a role and taxes pay a role. And so when you sort of stand back, um, it's not that overwhelming. It's not that big a deal. Of course, I could be put out of a job if I keep talking that way, <laughs> because people will take control. But what's happened, call it in the last decade, um, you have seen what's gone on. People have taken on more and more debt mm -hmm. because lifestyle has driven uh, or a desire for a lifestyle has driven great amounts of debt and everything was fine as long as you have a job. It's the minute you don't have a job. It's the minute a wild card hits, a pandemic, where all of a sudden you realize I have spent more than I should have. There was this fear of missing out in the real estate market. Prices are going to just keep going higher and higher. So I have to do everything I can to get in if I want to satisfy that dream of owning a home, even if maybe owning a home isn't right for me right now because I don't have the financial maturity for it, meaning enough money to come in in the event something does happen. And what we're starting to see, sadly, is that day of reckoning happening to families that have taken on so much debt. If you do lose your job, how do you make that mortgage payment? How do you make that loan payment or credit card payment? Um, the money that people are getting from the government is a band-aid, it's financial aid, it's short term, and we're gonna start to see, unfortunately, a lot of Canadians really spiraling. Hmm. So what do you think maybe, um, some tips for planning during the pandemic. You mentioned, you know, the emergency mm -hmm. fund three to six months, and maybe now it should be six to nine months. But are there any other things that we could do during this time that might be helpful for our financial situation? Well, I do think there have been some silver linings that have come out of the COVID-19 situation. One is, um, I think people are very clear that they can do with a lot less. We're seeing it every day. So they likely won't return to their old, what I call mindless spending. People are very aware right now what they're spending their money on. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, happiness isn't going to come from consumption. No matter what the social media feeds say, it really doesn't. But what we are craving, relationships, experiences, time together. I think that's a really big one. I also think that uh, many Canadians want to buy Canadian, buy local, and buy quality. Um, cash is king. Having some cash available when you need it. We've never really had that mentality before, and I'm starting to hear it more and more. And so I think understanding your individual financial situation very clearly, and people are razor sharp on that right now. 
they know exactly what their bills are. They know exactly how much money they have coming in. And they, if you look at the savings rates through the pandemic, they're starting to go higher. We haven't seen that in decades. And I mean, literally decades. It, it makes me think of, uh, my husband is older than me and his parents were born around the time of the depression. And so they've always just been savers. You know, they have not, they have, they've never right. overconsumed or spent more than they had, you know, growing up around that time really just influenced their mindset around value and consumption and savings and all of that. And as you say, I think returning to a, a bit of that, you know, saving money and only getting what we need, you know. I think you're, you're so right about that. People are telling me that uh, saving is way more satisfying right now than spending. And, and so I want, I want to see some spending. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I think the Canadian economy needs that to happen. We need people to, who can afford to go out and support the economy. But what we've seen in the past decade, there have been consumers out there that on a single-handed basis felt the need to prop up the economy when they haven't been in a position to do so. And so I, I think it's, it's about having a balance act. And don't get me wrong, I don't want people to stop spending altogether and not enjoy life. And, and I think many will. And I'm seeing some trends come out of it. People are saying, um, we've been in isolation now for you know months, and we realize what's working in our home, what's not working in our home. Money that we might have spent on a vacation, we're going to renovate. Uh, couples who can't walk down the aisle are taking their refund checks and they're buying their first home. And then you've got others saying, maybe now's the time for a second property in cottage country. It doesn't mean spending won't happen, but people are a lot more thoughtful right now. Mm. I want to take it back a little bit to talking a little bit more about you. Um, you mentioned that your father, your first father, passed away um, unexpectedly of a heart attack when you were nine years old. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. And that your yeah. mom had to then take control of the finances. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, that impacted you growing up as a child. So you, did you feel some sort of sense of responsibility to provide or to be um, you know, financially sound. Is that where this sort of came from for you? Mm. Wow. You know what? I'm going to sound really selfish. No, absolutely not at all. <laughs> I actually, you know, once I did an article um, for a major newspaper and my mother saw it and I said, oh, my mother, when my father passed away, she was devastated. She didn't know what to do. And, and I went on and on and painted her as a victim. Oh my goodness, to this day, she has never let me forget it. She made me go and do a retraction. And I did, uh, because she said, I knew exactly what I needed to do. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, they had a mortgage and of course it was forgiven because they had insurance uh, because my father passed away. But on the other side of it, she had to get a job. She had to manage. She had to raise two children. Um, uh, my mother did remarry three years later and it would make for a great story if I had the wicked stepfather and that kind of molded me. He was a great guy. Couldn't be more supportive. When he asked me if he could marry my mother, I said, I don't know. I'm not sure. And he came back with, will you let me love you and support you financially? Oh and I remember thinking at the time, yeah, that sounds like a pretty good deal. I mean, okay, <laughs> sure. Let's go with it. And, and you know what? My biggest supporter and fan in life was, was my father. I, I never called him a stepfather, but my point is, um, I think I've always had this desire to go out and earn money, 
my mother, my parents at a really young age said, if you want the designer duds, you can get them, but we're only paying for this. And so I can remember having three paper routes at the same time, working in a theater in the beaches in Toronto, um, doing part-time jobs wherever I could because I wanted my own discretionary money. So if I could pick at that a little bit, I, I grew up very Catholic and it was kind of like the pauper makes it to heaven sort of thing, you know, uh, <laughs> the poorer you are, you know, the more oh. it was kind of valued. Right. And so, um, okay. I just, I would love for you to just paint a picture of wealth and the positivity of wealth. I think even if you didn't grow up with that Catholic um, upbringing like I did, there's still this idea that money is bad. Having money is bad. Too yes. much money is bad. So I'd love to hear your perspective. What is beautiful about wealth? <laughs> um, you know, okay. Okay. That's a, that's an interesting question. Uh, I don't think money is bad. I do think money, talking about money for some is still gauche. They don't, they don't like to talk about it. Uh, they don't like to share it with family members, and and I and I I respect it. I don't always agree with it. Um, I think wealth, if handled properly, is a great thing because it does allow you to spend and to save and to give. It's like mm -hmm. a three-legged stool, um, according to what you'd like to do. And I know you can't give to everyone, but when you're very crystal clear on your values, what matters most to you, and you get to decide: Do I? give in my own backyard, to my own family, to those in my community? Do I do it on a national basis, international basis? I mean, there's a real liberation around that. But if I can just push back a little bit, I'm not just talking, when I talk about wealth, I'm not just talking about, um, you know, dollars in the bank or my investment portfolio. Um, I think it can be many things. There are many women who want to give back to their communities and they do so. And that's the type of thing that they value. Others will value family and friends. And um, that's a big issue. I know many who value climbing the corporate ladder or starting their own business and others that say, I value my bank account. And mm -hmm. I don't think any of it's wrong. It's knowing who you are and what you value. And that's how I define real wealth. Oh, I love that. I just, I can bottle up and throw away uh, 40 some years of, uh, of negative money mindset right there. Thank you. People will define themselves sometimes by virtue of their bank account. You know, mm -hmm. I'm more worthy if I have a bigger bank account. Are you kidding me? Absolutely not. No, that's just such a financial dust ball. It's just a great message to send out there though. Another area that you value that we've read about and actually, um, just a little side note here. Um, I remember seeing you at Yoga B when it was in the basement. Oh, and you yes. were going to Michael DeCourt's class, Jock Yoga class, consistently. So another yes. area, I volunteered there at the time because I was learning how to run a studio to open up our studio, Afterglow. And so that's why I was there, just kind of in the background. Um, but so another area that you feel is important is your health. And um, yes. you were even in Best Health Magazine with your daughter talking about the importance of your health with your family, staying healthy for you as an individual, but also as, as a family. Yeah. Do you see this as you know, like you mentioned, there's areas in your life that are contributing to your health and well-being and, and, and wealth. Do you see this mm -hmm. physical health as a part of your wealth as well, as people's wealth as well? 
Oh my gosh, 100%. I mean, I always think if you can solve a problem with money, you really don't have a problem. I mean, think about the health issues that so many people have to deal with and you can't solve that. Um, I have always been one to sort of carve out time to work out is of utmost importance to me. I gather I can try to be the best version of me at every stage. And that means to the extent that I can control having a healthy body and a healthy mind, um, I'm going to do everything I can. And so I, I think that's amazing that, that, you, that you did that kind of research. Um, but I, I want to stay active. I want to do things with them. You know, my Instagram profile, which I think is how we, we connected initially, I did it just to see what everybody was doing. And one of the defining moments, I, somebody said to me, like, what, what's the purpose of yours? And it's family, friends, fitness, and fun. Like family, friends is one, finance, fitness. And, and it's because these are the things that matter to me and I'm going to have fun doing it. And if somebody doesn't like it, guess what? I'm okay with that. You don't have to follow me. These are just some of my values. You, you have kids. Julie and I have kids. Julie has three kids. I have four kids as well. What can we do to help them have healthy money habits for life? Do you have mm. a couple of tips for us? Um, make them accountable. Let them own their plan. Um, I remember chatting with our daughter, Jane, when she was 16 and she got her first part-time job. And I said, I am so excited about this. And she said, why? A little skeptically. And I said, because here's exactly what you can do with your money now. And she looked at me and she said, and it, it was a good moment. She said, why would I care about that? Because that doesn't excite me. That excites you. Here's what I want to do with my money. And I thought, Yes, if somebody tells you you should be saving for retirement or you should be doing this or that, and that's not what you want to do, you are not going to get excited about saving. So let people set their own goals. Going off to university, we wanted to gift our children their post-secondary education. It was important to me, back to my own educational thing. But I also wanted them to have some skin in the game. And what I meant by uh, $2,000 and provide us with a budget on your whole year for university. Um, and if you can't, then you better give back by way of community giving and we'll look at the equivalent and we'll see what we can do to make that happen. But that was really important. I needed them to, to participate, to be an equal partner here, not just what we call economic outpatient care. And it's a term that's out there where as a parent, because I can afford to, I'm just gonna keep doling out money to you for a lifestyle that you haven't quite earned, that's not going to happen. Interestingly, your husband does the finances in your family. Is that correct? He does. And so, does. you know, we see you, we see you on the news, we see all your knowledge, yeah. um, talking to women about, you know, making sure that they take control of their finances and stuff. And so how did you sort of release that control and how did you manage, um, you know, your own sort of sense of stability and, and structure in this? Uh, because I let him, we decided that there would be one focal point in the family. And for a long period of time, it was me. And I can tell you at any given time, Jim could tell you exactly, almost to a dime, where we stood financially. Um, we used to what we call balance the books together. Every year we sit down and we do our net worth statement together. And we've kept everyone over the last 25 years. So we could monitor our progress 
we would set our goals together. Um, we don't control each other in terms of every dime I have to be accountable for. We put thresholds into place and you don't have to ask the other person, but I will tell you that uh, for years it was a $500 threshold. Anything over that, it wasn't about asking permission, it was respect. I would like to get this or I need to get this for the house. What do you think? And as we commingled the assets, we knew what we were spending our money on. But the point I'm trying to make is, um, I think when you're in a, mo in a relationship, you're in it emotionally and you're in it financially. And we've always believed that uh, no secret bank accounts, no secret spending. It's about disclosure and transparency. And we built our relationship on respect. So I have no problems handing it over to him because we discuss money market all the time. You've been doing this work for, for a while and different iterations, first working in a bank, writing books, commenting on TV. What inspires you to keep doing the work that you're doing? Oh, that is a great question because so many people keep saying, why are you working? Can you not afford to retire? <laughs> yes, for the record, I can't afford to retire. Um, I do it because I want to help people. I do it because I really have a passion and I do it just because of the feedback when you actually help someone. It's a win-win. And, mm -hmm. and it's something that doesn't feel like work to me. And honestly, I know people say that all the time, but it really doesn't feel like work. And so to the extent that I can try to help people, I'm going to keep doing it. Eventually, one day, it'll be a different avenue. It'll be something different. But I really don't ever just plan on sort of, you know, walking away from it. It's just not in my DNA. You have such a strong sense of self. And, and obviously, you know, you're, you're, you're walking the walk and, um, you know, not just talking the talk, which is amazing. So we're curious about how you learned that trust inside of yourself. You know, we often experience a lot of self-doubt as women. Where does that trust come from you? Wow. Uh, it's very nice that you think that because I think I'm a bit of a feedback junkie because as soon as we're finished this, I'm going to go, how did that go? Did you get mm. what you were after? Are you mm. sure? And then I'll think for the next two hours how I might have answered the question and it could have been better. Uh, you know, I, I learned something years and years ago. If you prepare, um, and I couldn't prepare because you didn't send questions for this, but <laughs> yeah, once you sneaky. prepare, once you take the time, deliberately, I'm sure, <laughs> um, once, once you really put the effort in and you give it your best, there will be some people that will be um, listening to us and they're not going to like me no matter what happens. And I can't change that. But I, what I can change is to say that I'm being me. I'm giving you my honest answers. I'm giving you my best that I have right now so that when I walk away and if there is somebody listening right now and they don't like it, I can't have any regrets for that because I did the best I could. It's when you do things, I don't even know, I want to say half-assed way. You don't commit. You don't give it your all. You don't do the research. Um, I have been on air and I like I I'm dyslexic so I don't read a teleprompter I need to understand I need to comprehend I need to deliver but you're gonna make mistakes and so when I make a mistake I own the mistake and and know that in that moment I did the very best I could I love that very honest, very honest answer thank you for that yeah I love thank that you. It's 
do the best you can to prepare, you know, be true to yourself. And then also it's okay to maybe afterwards take a look at how can I improve for next time, right? That idea of continuous improvement as well, because we can always, there's always room to improve. I love that. You know, I have had four guiding principles, which you probably already know because you read the book, but it's about, you know, getting excited and following your passion. Play to your strengths. Doesn't mean you don't focus on some of your weaknesses, but really, you know, play to your strengths. And, you know, it's about lifelong learning. I am never going to stop learning. I, I have mentors in all walks of life and they're young, they're older, they're in different areas. And I'm not afraid. I don't have all the answers. I'm never going to have all the answers, but I have a lot of questions. And so as long as you can ask a question, you can find out more and more information. Amazing. We have a question we like to ask all of our guests. Uh, okay. And it's, it's what's your afterglow and you know, what's coming after everything that's already happened. So what's ahead for you <laughs> for the next 40, 50 years? What's, what's your afterglow? What's oh. your vision? You know, I think it's going to continue to, uh, to write blogs. I'm pretty, I've written seven books. I'm done. I'm done with the book, uh, but maybe not. Who knows? Uh, I want to continue to connect with people. I'd like to mentor more. I'd like to be more of a resource. On my Instagram, when people direct message me, I try to answer every single person. And people go, why? That's crazy. Well, because someone took the time to send me a message. And I'm not talking about the silly requests or you know things like that. But I get some very serious questions from people who really want an answer. And when I don't have the answer, I want to be able to refer them to someone who I think might have the answer for them. And so my afterglow is going to be a variation of exactly what I'm doing right now. I get it. I cannot be on TV forever, probably will not be, but that doesn't mean you can't continue to help people. That's amazing. So I have a story. I, I remember way back when Susie Orman was getting really popular on Oprah and stuff and um, she was just teaching people about really basic steps that they can take to start to save. And I remember her saying something like, you know, if you're buying Starbucks at $6 a day for 365 days, mm -hmm. a year, that's over $2,000 that you're spending on your coffee and you're basically just drinking away your money. And so I took that tip really seriously and was like, okay, I'll do my coffee, special coffee, you know, twice a week or once a week instead and just drink the coffee from home and that kind of thing. And it really makes a difference. So can you give our listeners a couple of just really teeny tiny concrete places that they can start to save in their own lives. I absolutely agree with you. I think it's about doing small things can lead to big changes. So by, for example, obviously the coffee, um, but I also break it down differently in our lives. We will say, I am not spending any money from 6 a.m. till 10 a.m. And so that means I'm not spending anything. Like that means I bring my snack. I bring my coffee. I make my breakfast. Um, I'm not spending any money from 10 till 2. Guess what? I've saved. But what I also did early on is I would record the money that I normally would have spent. And I take that money at the end of the week and I put it into a separate account. And then I just leave it alone. And then once I sort of, you know, gain some traction there, that's when I would say, okay, um, you know what? I might have a goal where I'm going to spend it on something that really mattered to me, but I didn't have to go into debt, that Chanel purse. Or maybe I'm going to put it on a credit card 
or I'm going to start investing in it. I also think um, when you look at how much money you have coming in on a monthly basis, and then you really track all of your spending, anything that doesn't have a contract associated with it, guess what? You can cut it out. It's a discretionary expense. If you've signed a contract, pick up the phone and just call them and say, hey, my son did this recently. He said um, to his insurance company, I'm not driving my car because I have nowhere to go right now. And they said, well, we know. All right, we'll cut back $62 on your annual premium. David said, mom, that took me a minute and a half to make the phone call, get the answer, and I got paid 62 bucks for doing it. So as mom always says, if you saw 62 bucks on the ground, would you bend down and pick it up? Yes. Think about the money that you're throwing out when you clean your fridge each week, mm -hmm. the food that just doesn't get eaten. Mm -hmm. That's money that, that could be better spent. And so I just think when you look at every single line, you'll find that there's a lot more wiggle room than you ever thought. And here's one more. Um, if you happen to be fortunate enough to be working right now, Many people don't know their entire benefits package. They don't know all the things that they're entitled to, where they may get a break, where there are things that they can claim. If you're working from home right now, understand the parameters. You might be able to get some money back that way. It's looking at every single line. You'll find some money. You'd be surprised. The budgeting is something that I know so well. It was also another gift that I got from my ex-husband because he was a very <laughs> firm believer in the budget. So I will say that as much um, time as it takes and energy as it takes to go ahead and do all those line items, it is so worth it to see where you're spending based uh, on what's coming in and what's going out. Budgets get such a bad rap. It's almost like a distasteful word. And you know what? They're not carved in stone. They're your budget. It's your budget. And so, you know what? There's lots of wiggle room. Make some changes. But you can't make an informed change if you don't know. And you only know if you go through the hard work like you did. I love those tips. I love that one about um, not spending at certain times of the day, or I could even imagine for myself not spending, you know, one day per week. It's kind of like inter intermittent fasting where, you know, <laughs> yeah, you're not yeah, eating yeah. for certain periods of the day. And it's almost that same idea. You're not spending for certain periods of the day. I love that. I'm going to try that. But you have to make sure that um, it's kind of like going on a diet. You lose five pounds and you think, okay, then I can eat whatever I want and it's right back. <laughs> You have to actually physically, I think, take the money out of that account as though you did spend it and put it elsewhere. And then you start to see, and there are, there are apps up there, out there that allow you to roll up to the next dollar, take that money and save it. Uh, there are just so many things that it's about discipline. It's about discipline. And the more discipline you have, um, I just think the better off financially you will be. You have so many amazing tips. Do you have any final words that you want to just share to our listeners, to other people out there, just that might be beneficial that we haven't touched on yet? Hmm. Well, I was, I, okay. Um, I'm actually thinking, I know we're talking a lot about money, but I think when people get their financial foundation in order, they take control of their financial situation, uh, then it starts to work for itself and it starts to build because when you get that in order, it frees you up to do the things in life that really will give your life more balance and meaning. So it's not about the money. It's about that foundation in place. And I'll, I'll end with, I was sitting in a doctor's office and I had two people that both happened to recognize me. 
And one woman leaned over and said, can I ask you a quick question? Okay. She said, I have $2 million and I don't know if I have enough to retire. And I thought about it. And before I could even answer, another woman that was sitting there leaned over and she said, I have $200,000 and I have more than enough in retirement. And here's my answer. You're both right. Because lifestyle will drive how much money you need. The woman that thought she didn't have enough at $2 million could be very right. She may be very accustomed to a lifestyle that won't be sustainable in retirement. The other woman probably was very frugal. She was very comfortable with who she was, didn't spend a lot of money, and she felt very comfortable. And that's okay. So they can both be right. So it's not about judging. It's about really understanding your financial foundation, put it in place, and then go live your life the way you really want to. Amazing. Where can we learn more? Where can we find you? Uh, thank you. Uh, I have a weekly blog on ctvnews.ca. I write weekly as well on bnmbloomberg.ca. Um, I'm putting up financial fitness tips uh, on my Instagram at patty underscore love it read. And I tweet everything out as well. So um, yeah, I try to I try to get out there with as many different messages that I can that hoping that one of them sticks with you. And it kind of resonates. All right. Amazing, Patty. Thank you so much. You're so generous with your with your wisdom and your longing for people to live um, healthy and wealthy lives really shines through. Uh, so thank, oh, you, thank for, you for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for asking. It was a real honor. Thank you. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening in. Be sure to follow us on social media at the Afterglow Podcast Official. And take a minute to leave us a rating or review on Apple, Spotify, and Google. Lift a sister up and share the afterglow with others who are seeking their courageous second act.